Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Welcome, alhamdulillah, back to our ongoing study and reflection of the life of the Prophet sallallahu um, and you know this is trying to dig into certain moments in the life of the Messenger Allah to kind of glean some reflection and some inspiration for our own lives, inshallah. Um, last week we finished talking about the experience of the Prophet Sallallahu when he received revelation and kind of what was to follow and how the response was uh, within his family. So we we talked specifically about. You know his his connection with the Quran, and how even though there was a small period of time where there was a period of uh, lack of revelation, he wasn't receiving anything new from God. That even though that time was relatively small, right? Um, some scholars even say up to a few weeks, maybe. That he felt a, a a you know concerning disconnect, and that bothered him, and that gave him a little bit of a concern. And so this shows us obviously that our connection to the Quran is paramount; it's absolutely necessary. And that if we are disconnected from the Quran for extended periods of time, and we don't feel something, then that might be an indication of something problematic within us, right? That we gotta inspect and make sure that we check on. So we finished kind of talking about how the Prophet Sallallahu then took this message that he got, and the first person he went to after receiving revelation was his wife, Khadija, our mother, may God be pleased with her. And in this message that he spoke to her, she affirmed, validated, confirmed, you know, let him know that she believed in him, that she supported him. And then she took him to uh, you know, her relative, Waraka bin Nawfal, who was a Christian monk, who was a Christian you know, a scholar of religion, and he also affirmed, he also acknowledged that this was something that was coming from God, that up until that point it had been the Christian doctrine, and now this was the coming of the final messenger that had been prophesied even in the Judeo-Christian literature and scriptures. And so he acknowledged and he accepted the Prophet ﷺ. And then we talked about how people in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, his closest family, right? We talked about this idea of trying to be uh, to those closest to you before we try to save society and save the world, that we can't stand in a crumbling uh, home. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today as we begin to discuss this portion of his life. Now, one thing that's interesting is that the Prophet said, and many of us probably don't know this, right? Um, was five daily prayers ordained from this point of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Okay, very good, right? So that might be something that you don't know. And if you didn't know it, don't worry about it, right? Now you know. Five daily prayers was not ordained. It was not ordained. It was obligated after a journey that the Prophet Sallallahu took. We're going to cover it probably in a couple months, actually, in a few weeks maybe, um, where the Prophet Sallallahu during a, a, you know, climactic time of his life when when living in Mecca was virtually impossible. Now it was a matter of life and death. It wasn't a matter of difficulty or social pressure. Now it was a matter of assassination attempts being made in his life. When that was happening, 
God had invited the Prophet Sallallahu to come and visit him in the highest heavens. And that's when the five daily prayers was ordained. So what did they do before the five daily prayers were obligated? So there was a time when you didn't have to pray five times a day. I know mentally some of us are like, man, missed out, right? And that, you know, the, the, the kind of humor that we have, right? Inshallah, it's not that way. But that kind of like reaction, that laughter, it's actually indicative of something. And I think that this is probably one of the greatest challenges that we have as a very busy society and a very busy community of people, uh, especially in the young professional generation, that there is no time for anything. Everybody feels incredibly busy and also no one wants to break their work momentum, right? Especially when you've kind of taken some time. Everyone knows to get to work, get to the office. Uh, you know, you kind of check your mail, check whatever, get a cup of coffee. Don't really get started till an hour and a half, two hours later. And then when you finally start, you know, processing through those emails or, you know, surrounding on those patients or whatever it is that you do, right? Starting teaching those classes. If you're a teacher, you don't really want to stop and take a break for anything. And so this kind of lifestyle actually counteracts the lifestyle that is, is, is embedded with prayer because prayer is a required stop. It's a required pause. And that required pause serves as a reminder. But the time before the five daily prayers were obligated, the common notion is that, well, there was a time when people were Muslim and they didn't pray. And then there was a time when prayers were obligated and that was five daily prayers. But it actually wasn't the case either. The understanding that the scholars of historical, you know, sirah, the, the Prophet Sallallahu life give us, is that actually there were two prayers that were ordained. Two prayers. There was one that was done in the morning and one that was done in the evening. These were the obligated prayers. The interesting thing about this, this piece of information that you come across when you read the life of the Prophet Sallallahu is what does it show you about prayer? What does it show you that there was not a single moment in the life of the messenger of God in which prayer was not a requirement to be part of his community? What does it show you about the power of prayer? When I say prayer here, I'm not talking about like supplication. I'm talking about actual facing Mecca and praying or in that time, Jerusalem. What does it show us? Or what are your reflections about that? What does prayer do for you? We just prayed, by the way, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Mary, you going to say something? Okay, so it allows you to have that remembrance of him, right? Whether or not it's forced or whether or not it's wanting to, right? Whether or not you, you go to it begrudgingly, right? Or whether or not you go to it excitedly, right? It's that relationship. Okay, very good. Although that perspective going to it also teaches us a lot about ourselves too. You know, no one wants to be in a relationship with somebody who the other person is making them feel like this is forced, you know, like go and hang out with your brother. Okay, right? Or, you know, we all remember growing up and, and maybe that feeling of seeing the face of somebody who realizes that that person doesn't want to sit and talk to you, right? That sort of uh, unfortunate, you know, disappointment. And that may be how, how does God feel about how we approach Salah, right? It's kind of a wake-up call. Like, is God really appreciative of the fact that we're like, I have to pray, right? Let me pray real quick. Right? These sort of descriptive phrases that we use are very indicative sometimes of the things in our heart because no one does what they love real quick. No one's like, let me go to sleep for the night real quick. Right? Everyone's like, let me sleep. Oh, I'll put butter on my sleep. Oh, I'll give me 12 hours. You know, like, let me go and go on vacation real quick. Like, that's not how we talk about things that we love, right? And so even in the language that we use, there's some uh, hazik, right? Yeah, mashallah. I remember your name because you complimented my coffee, Right? But yeah, so you had your hand up before Mariam shared. What does prayer do for you? It's a meditation. Anyone else feel that way? Raise your hand if you feel like prayer brings peace to you. 
right? That's actually probably the most common one. And it's interesting because the prophet Sallallahu even before he was ordained as a messenger of God in the mountain, what was he doing? I mean, a kind of meditation, right? Tahannuth. So he was actually spending time detaching himself. So when we see all of these fruits of Salah, we understand then what the goal is of prayer. What is the goal of prayer? And so when you find out that the Prophet ﷺ actually had in his life this obligation, this thing that was from the beginning of his time as a prophet was necessary, it automatically reframes now this whole conversation about what is the basis of a person's faith. And this idea that a person can be a strong Muslim without having a connection to prayer. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that you're perfect in your prayers. But at the beginning, it means that you love prayer, right? Because somebody can do their prayers and hate them. And somebody cannot, for some reason, whether it's weakness or circumstance, not do them and want to do it, right? There was a person I know who's uh, he's in the medical field, and he said there's times where he's doing procedures where he can't pray, right? He's like, I just can't. Like, I'm in the middle of a trauma surgery or something. So he asked me, he's like, what do I do? How do I pray? And he said, there's been a few days where I've had to go home and pray five in a row, you know? Um, and he's like, it's because of work. Otherwise, I would try. I would, le- I would at least try to pray. And... Uh, I told him, I was like, were you doing surgery at Fedra? He's like, no, that one I missed, right? But anyways, so, <laughs> so, so true story, by the way. So we're close. So he, so he, he the, the beautiful conversation, right? Forget the legal ruling about that. The beautiful moment of that conversation was like, I saw a yearning in his eyes. Like he's, he's upset about it. You know, he's upset. Versus, you know, for, for some of us, it's like, well, how, you know, how can I become a person who prays more often? Because I know that this is something I should do, and it's almost like a, 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 an obligation that we don't want to do at work. It's similar to one of those. So the Prophet Sallallahu the reason why he talked about prayer so much was because he wanted us to understand what it does for us. So obviously, each and every one of us has our own reading on it, but let's talk about what the Prophet Sallallahu said it would do for you. He was once sitting with his companions, and he told them, what would you guys do if there was a river flowing right outside of your house? That's what he asked them. And remember, where do they live? Not the rainforest, right? Where? The desert. Does the desert have a lot of water? No. So this is a very like exaggerated example he's giving them. Not only do they not have rivers outside of their houses, they only have like one well in their city, two wells in their city, three wells in their city. If you go to Medina today, you can actually visit some of the wells that the Muslims had access to. And we drive to them and there's like 10, 15 minutes drive between them, driving between the wells. Meaning that if you lived, if you were situated in between the two wells, you would have to walk 45 minutes to an hour to get your, you know, whether it was like a skin, like some sort of animal skin where you filled water or like a bucket or vessel or something. So the idea of having a river in front of your house was already like shocking to them. Okay, so this is how the Prophet taught. He would get their attention, right? And he wouldn't get their attention in the way that like our parents get our attention, right? Hey, stupid, come here, right? He would get their attention, right? Inshallah, our parents never said that. Right? He would get their attention with like beautiful metaphor. Right? He would get there to beautiful metaphor. So he's like, he's like, could you guys imagine if you had a river flowing in front of your door? And of course, river for them meant what? Also like vegetation, water on demand, anything you wanted. So they were like, oh my God. Like the response of the companions was like, how amazing would that be? You know, how incredible would that be? And he said, if you then went into that river and you washed yourself would you have any dirt on you, like nice flowing water? They're like, no, because again, what was the process of bathing? It wasn't like us with running water. They had to go get the water. They had to decide how much they were going to drink. 
Then they had to decide what they were going to bathe themselves with. Then they'd have to sit in like a tub and pour water over them. This is how they took the, the ghusl. This is how they took their bath or their shower. So again, it's not like a nice flowing stream where you jump in and kind of you know, get washed down. So he said, how about if a person did that five times a day? And the people were just like, yes, absolutely. Then he said, would any dirt remain on them? What do you guys think? Any dirt? Absolutely not. If you showered, how many of you all shower five times a day? Right? You got issues. Okay, mashallah. <laughs> You guys have issues, mashallah, right? Shower once, twice. You know, and after a shower, you feel super clean, right? You feel, especially if you use super hot water. Anyone here use super hot water when they shower? I come out of the shower and I'm red. My wife's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good, right? You feel super clean. You feel super, super fresh, you know? And so he said five times a day. And so the Prophet Sallallahu then said, this is how he taught. He got everyone excited at this thing that was like a dream come true. He said, how then would your heart be if you went and washed it five times a day by praying to Allah? Like your body would be pure. How then would your heart be if a person then went and met Allah and he specifically said it would erase your sins? So a person, think about this. When I commit sins, I'm committing sins in between two prayers. Anytime I commit a sin, I'm committing a sin in between two prayers. Whether that sin is after Isha, it's before Fajr. Whether that sin is after Dhuhr, it's before Asr. There's always a prayer waiting for me to go and rinse that sin from my heart. The question is not whether or not the opportunity is there. It's whether or not I'm going to use it. That's the issue. So we commit sins in between two salahs, but sometimes we think to ourselves that maybe we don't need it. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. But now imagine the person who's so convinced that they don't need a bath. They don't need a shower, right? They went to the gym and they're like, I'm going to go to work after this without showering, right? Or they went and, you know, the, the thing that always comes to my mind when I think of this hadith is that whenever I get a haircut, after I get a haircut, I have to go shower. Why? Because all of the residue of that haircut makes me feel so uncomfortable. But then I think to myself, subhanAllah, like, do I feel this uncomfortable after I've committed a sin against Allah? Like, I should feel physically uncomfortable that I looked at this or I said this or I did this. And it should make me realize that there's something impure about this vessel inside of my chest. And I have to go and wash it. That's why whenever a prayer is offered to us, you hear the adhan, the response should not be, oh, man. The response should be, Thank God. Thank God that I made it to another prayer so that I can wash off all of the things that I did just before this. I can clean myself from all the mistakes that I made. The Prophet ﷺ also said that when uh, he used prayer as a form to express gratitude, he used prayer as a form to express his gratitude to Allah. And this is a very interesting you know, a hadith. He was praying one night and he used to pray so long. He used to pray so long, subhanAllah. Some of us, we pray like we're afraid we're going to break our wudu. Right? We're just like, let me get this over with real quick before you know my bowels take over or whatever. So he used to pray so long, subhanAllah. He used to pray and his feet, you know, would start to swell even. And, and you know, this is just the state that he was in, that when he was praying, he didn't sometimes realize you know, what the, the physical sort of state he was in. Right? He would just be standing there. He'd be in such deep contemplation. Just like we are when we're watching a movie. Sometimes you forget what time it is, or you're watching like a really intense game, right? Like the Bears, alhamdulillah, yesterday finally won on a field goal. It's poetic because they lost last year in the playoffs on a field goal. Sometimes when you're really invested in something, you lose track of even like what you're doing, the time, all that. So he's standing in prayer, and his wife, Aisha, she sees the discomfort that it's causing him. So you see you know, someone. And this happened, by the way, multiple times. Other companions also asked him. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, why are you putting yourself in so much pain? It's crazy, right? Like, I, the person I think of the most when I think of this story is like my mom or like my wife's grandmother. 
my wife's grandmother, she, you know, has been through so much in life. She's very elderly. She's very senior. And she even, you know, had like a fall at some point in her life a few a few years back where it hurt her hip. And so she has, you know, a lot of typical elderly kind of symptoms, you know, swelling of the feet and like sore at legs and stuff. But she prays Qiyam every night. She prays Qiyam every night. Anyone else have a grandparent that's like this? They're just constantly praying, right? And you wonder like how are you able to do this? And then the question comes in like you don't even have the energy to commit sins. What are you praying for? Like, what have you done wrong, right? Like, you, like, ate two paratas instead of one? Like, what's the, you know, you had two, you know, what, what is it that you did wrong? And subhanAllah, this was the, I, this was the mentality that they had with the Prophet Sallallahu Because obviously he's not committing sins, right? It's safe to say we know that. He, he's masum. He's protected from this. So he's not committing sins. So they would ask him, Ya Rasulullah, what are you praying so much for? And they would feel guilty. So they would look at him and they would say, we're the ones that have to pray like you're praying. Like you had the excuse not to pray. It's a very human thing to say, right? It's like when somebody says to me, like, I'm like, I just went to the gym. They're like, I need to go to the gym as they have a six pack. I'm like, you don't need to go anywhere. You need to get out of my house is where you need to go, right? Because you're identifying that this person, you got it. Like you've got what I want, right? Like I want to be where you are and that would thus relieve me of this thing called the gym, you know? So they're looking at the Prophet and saying, Ya Rasulullah, you're so attached to Allah. You're always remembering him. You're always making istighfar. Like, you never skip a beat. What are you praying for? And then he says, If that's the case, subhanAllah, look at his mentality. He's like, if that's the case, if it's true what you're saying, that I don't commit sins, I don't make mistakes, he says, then isn't it the case that I should be grateful to Allah that he's given me all that I have? So there was never a moment in the life of the Prophet where he said prayer was not needed. Either we're asking Allah to forgive us or we're, at, or we're thanking Allah for what he's given us. We're in between those two stations. That's what Ibn Qayyim said. The heart of the believer is in between two stations, he said. One is hoping, right, and constantly thanking and, and having, you know, love for Allah in that thankfulness and hopefulness of his forgiveness. And the other one is fear because I made mistakes. So I'm coming back to Allah like a child who comes back to their parent after they know they made a mistake and they want to make things right. That's the way that Ibn Qayyim described the heart of the believer. So when this ordainment of Salah was given to the Prophet even before the five daily prayers, it teaches us something. Before the Prophet was ever taught even to talk about Islam publicly, remember he's received Islam, he's talking now to a few family members, this surah was revealed, Ya ayul muzammil qumil layla illa qalila. O Prophet who has been wrapped up. So this is talking to the Prophet Wasallam. O you who has been wrapped up. What's that referring to? Huh? It's referring to the Prophet. What is it? The blanket. Remember, after he received revelation, what was he doing? He was shivering. He was shaking. So he went to his wife and he said, Zamiluni, Zamiluni, right? Wrap me up. Wrap me up. Ya ayhul muzammil, the one who is wrapped. So the Prophet is being spoken to Allah. Oh, you, you, Messenger of God, illa qalila. Stand in the night. And the, the understanding here is for prayer, except for a little bit. Like, take a break a little bit. Give yourself a little bit of rest. You don't have to constantly be hitting the prayer rug all night long and not get any rest for your body. So this is a lesson immensely to us. How many of us in here have ever felt too busy to pray? Raise your hand. Too busy to pray, right? And you know what? The answer is we probably were too busy to pray. Like, a lot of us kind of feel like, well, you know what? I should, you know. No, we were. But it's not a matter of time, is it? Because everybody has the same amount of time. What's it a matter of? Priority. 
we were too busy to pray. But you know what? We weren't too busy to go to the gym. We weren't too busy to check our social media. We weren't too busy to make sure we had lunch. And my mother, always, may Allah bless our mothers. My mom always used to say something really powerful. She used to say, like, how can you, and this is a bit intense, so I don't want everyone to, like, take this home and, like, you know, inscribe it on your wall, right? This is just food for thought. She used to say, how can you eat, how can you eat the meals that you eat all day without taking breaks to thank Allah for them? Like, you have breakfast, and then, like, you haven't prayed Fajr that morning. You have lunch, and you didn't pray Dhuhr. You have snack, you haven't, you know, snack because I'm a kid, right? Snack, right? You have a snack. How about that, Abdurrahman? Let's speak English now, okay? You have a snack and you didn't pray Asr. You're, you're, you're thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner, you haven't prayed Maghrib. And then you had a nice satisfying meal and you lay down in bed and you haven't prayed a shot. She said, you're feeding your body, but your soul is starving. You're feeding this body, but your heart is like begging you for some time for it to be nourished, just like your body was begging you for some time to be nourished, from, for, some, for some material to be nourished. So when the Prophet ﷺ first received his revelation, it's important to remember this, never forget this. God gave him prayer not because it was the end, but because God knew that this was the means to his end. His job was to be a messenger for all people. It's not easy. Anyone here have some tough stuff in your life going on? Yeah. You got some tough issues, whether it's coworkers, management, cl- you know, uh, you know, people that you work, students that you teach. Everyone has some tough situations going. We've talked about it. People talk about all the time how much they struggle with different aspects of their life. Don't see prayer as something that's taking away your time from that stuff. See it as something that is giving you the capacity and the blessing and the ability to handle that. Prayer gives you the strength to carry on what you need to do. That's why Allah gave it to the Prophet ﷺ because he knew how could a Prophet deliver this message and go through the trauma and the torture and the harassment and the tragedy that he's going to go through without having a connection to something greater. You meet people who have gone through such difficult things and you ask them, what is it that got you through? And they say prayer, salah. That's what got me through. This is what the Prophet ﷺ was being given. So this was the preparation for him. Some of us are, are encountering tra- you know, very difficult, traumatic situations in our life, and our heart has not been cultivated and prepared to handle those moments. And we're wondering why we maybe fail at very critical, pivotal times in our life. We wonder why. And the answer lies in the fact that we haven't spent enough time working on ourselves. You know, It's like if a person tried to perform at the Olympics and didn't work out for those four years. You guys ever met an Olympian athlete? You met Etihaj Muhammad, may Allah ta'ala give her success and everything. So she wrote a book recently, y'all should buy it. She's not paying me. You should buy it, right? Okay. I mean, Olympic athletes to me are, are, are absolutely crazy because, you know, NFL players, NBA players, they're cool, but you have a game in like two days, dude. You know what I'm saying? Like you're constantly practicing. An Olympic athlete is preparing with many tournaments in between for four years for an event that lasts like a week or two weeks, right? The Olympics. I know the summer, Olympi- summer Olympics is two weeks. The Winter Olympics feels like it's eight months long. I'm like, we're done with this, right? Canadian people rolling heavy stones, right? It's Canada's greatest curling. Anyways, okay. I love you guys. Uh, they, these people are preparing for four years. You know what that takes? That takes the focus to understand that the work I'm putting in now is going to help me when I need it. So Salah, prayer... When the Prophet ﷺ went through the loss of his wife, Khadija, when he went through the loss of his family, when he lost his children, when he was rejected by his people, when he was rejected by, you know, 
Ta'if, when he was put through all of this difficulty in his life, it was the prayer that gave him the strength to handle those moments. So if you're asking yourself, why is it that I repeatedly am having trouble in these critical moments? I lose my patience. I lose my temper. I lose my trust in Allah. Ask yourself one question. How strong is my foundation to begin with? I had a sister come up to me one time. She was in a very difficult spot in her marriage. And they got married and they were like the, you know, the Instagram, like the ideal Instagram wedding, right? I believe that was a hashtag actually, ideal Instagram wedding. No, it wasn't. But it was like beautiful. I mean, beautiful. I think they even got like a really famous person to come do the nikah, you know. And when the Quran was recited, they got like a qari to recite it. And the DJ timed the transition from Quran to music perfectly, right? <laughs> right? Sadaqallah al-Azim. Right? And then the DJ's like, all right, you know. It was, it was like perfect. I remember she was like telling me this. And then she said like something crazy happened. I said, what? She's like, after three months of marriage, like we just started fighting about the craziest things. You know, why'd you put the towel there? Why'd you put the towel there? No, you put it there. No, I put it there. Check the camera, right? Because they have like all these cameras. And they started getting, and they start unraveling. The words she uses were unraveling. She's like, I felt like we were so connected. We started unraveling. And she goes, is it true? And I go, what? She goes, is it black magic? <laughs> is, it, is it the evil eye? She goes, because all my mom's friends are telling me that somebody did black magic and now we have to call someone and pay them to do white magic? And she's like... <laughs> Is Harry Potter going to help us? Like, it was all very... And she was genuinely confused. She's like, how do we combat this black magic? And I said, look, we believe in the evil eye. We believe in evil forces. Like, we do believe in them. We don't... We, I'm not mocking them. I'm mocking how we constantly turn to them, right? I stub my toe. I'm like, who did Hasad? Who did Nazar of this beautiful feet, right? We constantly turn to these things, and we don't ask ourselves the critical questions first. So I asked her the same question that my teachers asked, and then all my, how's your salah? First question everyone asks me whenever I come to them with complaints from my teachers, how's your fajr? And I'm like, why? What does that have to do with that? They're like, how's your fajr? I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> They're like, are you diving back into your bed after? Or are you sitting for a bit and praying, making dua, remembering Allah? I said, half, half, Right. So I asked the sister, I said, look, can I ask you a question? I said, no judgment, nothing, right? Because we've all struggled with prayer or are struggling with prayer, okay? And that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult. People think hajj is the most difficult pillar. It's not. People think zakat is the most difficult pillar. It's not. One time, once a year, once, you know, Ramadan, it's not. Fasting is not tough. Prayer is tough. It's every day. That's the hardest pillar. So I said, is that, are you clapping or are you killing a mosquito? Oh, I thought you were feeling it. I was like, okay. <laughs> Bars, I guess. <laughs> you know? So then I asked this girl, I said, how's your salah? How's your prayer? And she said, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. And then she had this own realization. I didn't even ask the second question. She said, back when we were trying to get married, what were we doing? Praying all the time. Forget five. I'll do six a day, Allah. Just give me this nikah smooth, right? And I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works. She's like, I'll do seven. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it works, right? She said, we were praying all the time. We would remind each other to pray. And then she said, when things went well, we fell apart. We unraveled, right? And what unraveled before us was our relationship with Allah. This is why Omar bin Khattab said something very powerful. He said, 
when I see someone who's having trouble with people in their life, we're not talking about one or two issues because everyone here has issues. We're talking about like consistently drama, 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 right? Every time there's like an explosion, it's volatile. He said, Man kana li salatihi he said, whoever their prayer is weak and deficient, everything else will fall apart. This isn't the same thing as, oh, I've been diagnosed with a very terrible illness. May Allah Ta'ala give us shifa and protect us. Oh, you haven't prayed enough. That's not the same thing. This isn't accusing somebody of, this is why evil things are happening to you. This is not uh, uh, ammunition for others to use against you. It is accountability for me to use for myself. See how that's different? You can't take things happening in my life and tell me this is why Allah is doing it to you. But I can think to myself that, you know what? If I want to improve my relationships and my situation and my circumstances, then surely I can go to the one who's the provider of everything and try to get that right. Okay? So this is one of the lessons that we learned from the fact that prayer was ordained early in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, meaning right when he received revelation, these two prayers a day were there. And let me give you some advice. If anyone's struggling to pray five times a day, because it is a, it is a struggle. It is not easy, but it can become easy. What my teachers told me and what I tell everybody, and this sounds a little bit blasphemous, but don't judge me. Start one. Start once. Start with one prayer a day. If you have trouble making five, just start with one. Make that prayer every day. Don't miss it. Even if you miss the time, make it up. Never let that day go by without you praying that one prayer. Because very rarely have I ever met a person that's gone from zero to five. Very rarely. Okay? Without hajj. <laughs> so very rarely. That's a serious thing, by the way. Then do two. Then do three. Then do four. Then do five. And do it based on your schedule. Start, number one, with the one that is most easy for you. So for a lot of us, it might be Isha. If you work right now, in this time of year, when Fedra ends at like nine in the morning, Right? It ends at 7. Everyone's like, really? No, it ends at 7. I've been making it all this time with my qaza? No. <laughs> Start with the one that's easiest for you. If you're up early for work, out of the shower, you have wudu. Guess what? Hanafi madhab, you don't even got to intend for it. Just jump in that bad boy, let the water get to you, and your ghusl is complete, okay? I'm just trying to make it easy on people, all right? Okay? You don't need socks, right? Ladies, you don't need socks. Hanafi madhab, okay? Don't come at me, right? Don't at me, actually, is the way I say that, Okay? And pray your fajr, right? Maybe you don't have that kind of lifestyle. Okay, start with Isha. Maybe you have an extra long lunch. Start with Dhuhr. Like, you figure it out. But start there. Give yourself a timeline. Build up to it. And then your five prayers, you know what's crazy? You'll start to see them less as a, bur- a burden and more of a blessing. And you'll, your heart will actually want to do the next one. You're like, you know what? I'm kind of sad only having this one time a day to meet Allah. I wish I had more. Like, and you're going to tell yourself, I could do five now. After the third day, you're like, I got this. No, don't force it. Take it one step at a time. Because what you're doing is you're cultivating a love for Salah in your heart. And you're following the prophetic model. Two a day. And then after two a day, 13 years later, five a day. I'm not saying take 13 years. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's your path to perfection. I'm not the one to decide that. You know what your best effort is. Make your best effort. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us tofiq, inshallah. After the initial, whoops, what's this? After the initial moment where the Prophet ﷺ received his uh, message and prayer was ordained for him and for those who followed, the two prayers a day, he was given this verse. This verse, warn those people who are closest to you. 
your closest people. So this is why the first five people we saw from his family, they accepted, right? And then the sixth was his friend, Abu Bakr Siddiq, his best friend. He had this. And we talked about last week, it's difficult to have those conversations with people closest to you. It's really easy to talk to strangers because strangers only know enough about you to respect you. And the family know everything about you, right? They've seen you wake up in the morning. They've seen you go to sleep at night. They've seen everything. So it's hard to have the patience and the focus and the concentration to be able to have these really critical conversations with family. But the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us through this you know, Quranic verse and through his example that if a person cannot relate to those closest around them, they won't have the support system that they need to carry on forward in their life, right? Whether it's family or close friends, people who become like family, whatever you interpret that as. But we have a responsibility to have these conversations of purpose and priority with Allah with everybody around us. I have a really close friend of mine, mashallah, that I love hanging out with him because he is somebody that always reminds us to pray. Always. And I was literally talking with another friend about how much we both love this friend because we'll be literally in a parking lot and there's like enough time for us to make it home, right? Enough time for us to make it home. No, no, I'm just going to pray at home. I'm just going to quickly get home. And he's like, no, we're praying here. And I'm like, on 635? My car broke down. He's like, you need prayer now, right? Like... He literally has that dedication to salah. Like, we're going to pray right now in the parking lot. Man, I'm not comfortable. I need, I'm kind of sweaty. I'm this and that. So sweat doesn't break your wudu, right? Everyone's like, really? Yeah, it does not, right? And so he's so dedicated to that. Those are the people that you want close in your life. Those family members that can remind you, right? My brother, my sister, my mother, my father, these people who can push you towards virtue. And so the Prophet them, he actually invited his family over to his house. And it didn't always go well. In the beginning, he invited his family over to his house, and he wanted to sort of breach the conversation with them, that I've been given this message from Allah, I'm a messenger of God. So I want you to think of like the most difficult conversation you've ever had to have with your family, right? Whether it was, I'm not going to be a doctor, right? Or this is the person I want to marry, and they're not from our village in Pakistan, so I don't know (laughs) how that's going to go, you know? Or, you know, (laughs) I remember when I was, uh, so I proposed to Mahreen when I was, 18 and she was 17 and then obviously you know took a while to convince her parents they were like where do you live i'm like sesame street right (laughs) (laughs) no i was actually working at that point for a few years and you know it was mashallah like my family situation was tough growing up a little bit alhamdulillah alhamdulillah so we were all of us had jobs we were like you know doing stuff so for me like the idea of getting married was kind of a natural thing also arabs get married you know from birth basically right so Arabs are like, quick, you know, you're six months old. You have to find somebody, right? It's embarrassing. Our goat is older than you now. Um, and her parents were like, no way, because she's Bangladeshi. So they're not used to this stuff at all. They're like, what? what are you talking about? So her parents were like trying to sort of like, you know, dissuade this random guy who's like, I'm going to marry your daughter. And I was like, I don't understand what the big deal is. And over time, right, you know, we kind of developed this, you know, uh, strength to have these conversations. But the first one was very awkward. It's very difficult. And the first one, like you almost, you know, the, the anticipation leading up to it, you can almost feel your heart beating out your chest, right? Like it's very difficult. So imagine like you're having a really tough conversation with your boss or with your family. And so the Prophet is hosting a dinner in one of the homes of his family. And he has all of his family over. And he wants to tell them this news that I've accepted this, you know, or I've received this message from Allah, the divine, and I'm a messenger of God. And this is now my role. This is my responsibility. So he started to say it, and Abu Lahab, who was his, actually his uncle, 
before he was even able to get words out, he said, don't talk about this. He said, this is all a bunch of nonsense. Just be quiet. Right? Like, this is enough out of you. So the Prophet, he actually just became a little bit quiet. Right? And this is interesting because the Prophet, he fed everybody. He gave everybody food that night. He took care. He served them a beautiful dinner. And he was the host of the house. Arabs, at the time, the code of hospitality was that you would honor the guest, but the guest would also honor the host. So Abu Lahab broke this code, right? Like if the, if the host is going to stand up, you know, imagine going to someone's house and the host wants to tell you something. No guest is going to dare raise their voice and tell the host to be quiet. So this was a sign that ignorance, which is what Abu Lahab symbolized and represents, ignorance has bad character. The Prophet ﷺ is representative of what? He's chosen to be a messenger of God, and God says about him, Your character is esteem. Like, no one has better character than you. Religiosity cannot be rude. People who claim to have faith in Allah, and this is something that we all struggle with, that our ego suffocates our faith. Our ego, like, strangles our faith and doesn't let our faith exude itself in our character because the ego wants to prove itself all the time. The nafs wants to take over. Abu Lahab couldn't control his tongue in that moment when he was a guest in somebody else's home. And the Prophet ﷺ had the right, and he would have been supported if he said, excuse me, this is my home. I had you over for dinner. I'm allowed to say a few things if I want to. He could have easily just kind of been like, no, watch, you know, watch yourself. But he didn't. I said, he remained quiet. He said, okay, I'm not going to make my guests feel uncomfortable. This is what character does. It always defeats rudeness and impoliteness with its beauty. The beauty shines so bright you can't even see the darkness of the other stuff. So then he invited them back a second time. And he said, okay, the first time didn't work. Let me invite them back a second time. And after they ate and they drank, the Prophet some kind of got a head start on the conversation. He said, all praise is due to Allah. Or he starts off with this like really proud declaration. I praise Allah. I thank him and I'm relying upon him alone. I believe in him. I place my trust in him. And I declare that nothing is worthy of worship except for him. And this is, again, he's making this statement. And his home in Mecca was actually quite close to the Kaaba, a place that was littered, littered with idols. So he basically just told these people, all of your idols are completely meaningless. Not only that, that a lot of them were in the business of idols, right? So this is also why it was tough, because not only because they worshipped them, but also because it was their means of sustenance. So he's telling them, your business is worthless and your, and your idols are worthless too. And he says that, I have no partner with God, I worship him alone. He then continued and said, the ra'id, the guide who takes care of the caravan, would never leave them. What's he saying? The guide will never leave their caravan. What's he saying? Not, not Allah. Good, really good one. Really, really good. But not Allah here. Who comes after? Who's the guide in this, who's the guide in this scenario? So what's he saying? I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be here with you. A lot of times when a person gains something, and spirituality as well, when a person gains faith, their first thought sometimes is to abandon everything that was in their previous life. I'm done with you. You don't qualify. You don't match me. You don't fit with me anymore. He says, don't worry. The guide never leaves their caravan. I'm not leaving you. Because he was respected. He was loved. He was revered. And he understood what his presence meant in this family. 
So he says, the guide never leaves their caravan. And he goes, I would never lie to you. I would never deceive you. I, he actually even said, I would deceive the entire world before I deceived you. I would lie to everybody before I lied to you. And he wasn't a liar. So he's, he's making a big statement here. And he's saying that I want you to know that just like you will sleep, you will die. It's powerful. I know a lot of us here are like, okay, this is kind of tough for dinner conversation, right? But he's trying to make a point. He says, just like every night you go to sleep, one night you will go to sleep and you will not wake up. My grandmother, Lord Hamoha, she, that was actually the way she passed. She went to sleep. She didn't wake up. He goes, and that day for everybody is different. You will go to sleep and you will not wake up. And he goes, and you will be resurrected just like you wake up. That's the reality of your life. What's he doing? He's getting straight to the point. He's not talking about this or that religion. He's not trying to go through like, you know, he's like, this is just the reality of it. Don't you ever wonder when you go to sleep and you might pass away, don't you wonder what's going to happen after that? Is that just it? He says, no, you're going to be resurrected just like you wake up. And he says, you're going to be accountable for everything you did. And God will give you good for your good and he will give you bad for your bad. And heaven is for those who did good and hell is for those who did bad. And he says, so, oh, the sons of Abdul Muttalib, he's speaking to his family. He says, I know of no person from the Arabs who have come to their people better than what I am coming to you with. That this is actually the most important thing you can have. And he goes, so who of you will be my companion? All right. Now, there's three responses we're going to go over tonight before we close. The first response, he gets three responses. The first one, actually four. We're going to go four. The first one is Abu Talib. Who's Abu Talib? It's his uncle. Abu Talib's uncle. Abu Talib loves the Prophet ﷺ. He loves him dearly. Like, he's basically his foster child because he took him in after, right? Abdul Muttalib passed away. So Abu Talib and the Prophet ﷺ are very, very close. And the Prophet ﷺ is very emotionally attached to Abu Talib. And so Abu Talib actually says something beautiful. He says, how beloved you are to us. He's talking to his nephew. How beloved you are to us. How accepting of everything you say we are. If you said it, Ya Muhammad ﷺ, we would accept it. And then he says, and how firmly do we believe in you? And we are here to be your, like, your family. We're going to be around you. He says, but even though I'm the one that will do what is quickest to please you, if you asked me, right, taht amruk, they say, like, I'm under your command. I'll do whatever you say. He said, I cannot bring myself to separate from the religion of our father. What's he saying? Yeah, what I'm used to is more important to me, even though I love you. See, he's not disrespecting him. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He's like, you are the best thing ever. I love you so much, but I can't get myself to separate from what I'm comfortable with for what you're bringing. How many times does Islam ask us to break from what we're comfortable with to what's better for us? Many of us, we look at Abu Talib and we're like, you know what? If I were in his spot, I would have jumped in with the Prophet Right? Revisionist history. It's like how sometimes our parents tell stories about their life. I was such a hard worker. You ask your grandparents that, right? Were they a hard worker? They're like, who? <laughs> right? My, my estimation, Allah help us, is that many of us would be going through that struggle that Abu Talib went to. Because the proof of that is how the Prophet asks us to do things now and we battle with ourselves. And that's okay. Because we wouldn't be necessarily the ones who are rejecting him as a prophet. Because that's why we're here. But we might have that struggle. This is a lesson for us. 
how many things get in the way of our relationship with Allah because we're comfortable with them. And that's just the, what we're used to. So he says, I can't separate from them. So this is Abu Talib. And even though he's sweet to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, on his behalf, he still rejects Allah. He still says that I can't accept Allah, but I accept you as, as whatever you say you are. Then the next person is Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab responds and says, this is garbage. He says, this is foul. This is garbage. This is, get this out of here. And then he says, check this out. You find out what's fueling him. Have any, have any, have any of you ever wondered, like, what bothered them so much? Why did they hate the Prophet so much? Like, what got in the way? He was such a nice person. You loved him, and then all of a sudden he comes with this message, and now you're like, Ugh. that's exactly, right? That's my, you know what it was? SubhanAllah. There was a lot of things we talked about, the way of life, the business. You know what he says? The biggest thing was this. What will we say to the rest of the Quraysh? What will we say to the rest of the Quraysh? And how will we defend ourselves against them if we accept you over what they have? What will we say? Concerned about what? People. Appearance. What are they going to think about us? What will they say literally stopped someone so close to the Prophet ﷺ from seeing his message because they were too concerned seeing what other people would say? May Allah Ta'ala protect us. He was concerned about what society would look at him like. Then you have, these are the elders. Then you have Safiya, the aunt of the Prophet ﷺ. And when Abu Lahab says this, she goes, that's stupid. She goes, that's dumb. Literally, she goes, are you serious? She goes, are you seriously going to turn down your nephew because of that? And he goes, don't you know that there's been a prediction long coming? Long coming. This is like the what's that forward. There's been a prediction long coming. But she was accurate. That there was a prophet that was going to come from the family of Abdul Muttalib, and this is him. It's clear. Like she saw it, right? The ego and the arrogance of Abu Lahab, the attachment to heritage of Abu Talib, but the clarity of the mind of Sophia and the heart of Sophia. She goes, This is exactly the person that we need to follow. Abu Lahab responds and goes, This is just a bunch of women's gossip. That's what he said. Right? Classical misogyny. He goes, this is just a bunch of women's gossip. That is a falsehood. It's wishful thinking. All the women just talk about this in their homes. And if the Quraysh stand against us, we won't be able to fight them. <laughs> so it goes back to the same thing. Then the Prophet, sallam, he interrupts everybody. Right? Once they're done, he says, listen, are you guys done? And he goes, we need to go back to the question. Who's going to stand with me? Which one of you are going to stand with me? And he asks this question three times. And who's looking around the room except for his cousin, Ali radiallahu anhu? And Ali looks, and he's like, no one? After the third time, because remember, it's, it's, it's customary for younger people to wait until elders have spoken. He looks around, and he says, no one, none of you are going to support him? He stands at the end, and he says, I will be with you. I'm with you, Ya Rasulullah. I'm with you, a messenger of God. And the Prophet Wasallam said, he took his hand in his hand, and he said, we're together. This is the story, subhanAllah, of a young person seeing the clarity, right? And there's so many lessons here, whether it's Abu Talib's softness, but in, inability to commit. So many of us are just in that soft spot. Inability to commit, to move forward with something. Something. Alhamdulillah, it's not belief in the messenger. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, inshallah. But maybe there's something much smaller that we're just struggling to commit to, whether it's prayer, whether it's good character, whether it's foul language or good, for, whatever, you know, hijab, whatever it might be. We're just struggling to commit there. We just need that push. And then there's the Abu Lahabs that are just flagrantly out of line. 
And then you have the Ali's that represent courage. The ability to say in a room full of people that are looking at them, Sophia's as well, Ali and Sophia, that say, you know what, this is clear. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us that clarity. This is why we pray to Allah to make things clear for us. Because only when you can see things clearly with your heart can you make the right decision. Many times we don't make the right decision because our heart can't see things clearly. We're confused and in that confusion we become nervous and anxious and we don't move. Or we go back to comfort. But Sophia anha and Ali anhu, they saw this clear as a day. He's right. We ask Allah to give us that purity of heart. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us from not seeing things properly. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us the ability to practice what we've said and heard. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us with the character and the example of the Prophet in our lives. And we ask Allah to make prayer beloved to us. We ask Allah to make prayer something that we enjoy doing and that gives us rest in our hectic and busy days. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruk wa tubu ilaik. Jazakallah khair everybody for coming through again on Monday night. Um, really appreciate it. This community is very near and dear to me. I don't know what I would be without you guys, alhamdulillah. So Allah bless you. Take care of you. I love you all for the sake of Allah. And I'll see you guys next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.